Welcome to Rental Equip Talk Radio with your host, Donald Charbonnet. This is the radio program designed for industry insiders, as well as anyone interested in getting into the rental equipment industry. Now, here is Donald Charbonnet. Well, hello and happy holidays. I am your host, Donald Charbonnet, broadcasting live from the Charbonnet Enterprise Studio in New Orleans, better known as my home office. Today's show, again, is sponsored by WGL Consulting, the go-to company for buying and selling equipment companies. The company is headed by the industry's leading legal mind, Mr. James Waite. If you want to know more, go to WGLConsulting.com for more information. And a big thank you to all my faithful followers. Uh, Tell your friends and associates. Hope you enjoyed last week's show about uh, production and performance management. If you got a question, send it in. And as always, a quick plug for my book entitled, Screw You, The Comeback is Always Stronger Than the Setback. It's about careers and business in the rental industry. So here's a few chapter titles for you to think about. How about family business or from Clickums to chapter 11? If you want to know what a Clickum is, you'll have to read about it. And then there's also Spider's Web and much more. I, like many of you, thought I was set for life in the industry. In this book, you'll find the ups and downs of a career. Again, on Amazon.com. I know it's a crazy title, but you'll have to read it to believe it. And remember, you can always listen on demand after the show. And please let me know if there's a certain guest or subject you'd like to have in the show, and I'll do my best to get them. We have some good ones coming up in the weeks coming up to the ARA, which, of course, remember the ARA is right around the corner in February. Not too early to start that shopping list. And are you concerned about the economy in 2020? Uh, These will be some tough purchasing decisions as we uh, see sometimes some mixed signals about the construction economy in the upcoming years. You know, every day we read about investments in all different types of companies and industries. And the rental industry is no exception, nor are our manufacturers that supply our equipment. I've had the pleasure as well as the displeasure of working with several venture capital or private equity firms with different companies, and this also is outlined in my book. So I came across an interesting article that kind of outlines how all this works, and some of it really makes you think, and look, I'm not an expert at any of this. Although I've lived through some of it, some of the ideas I'm going to discuss are those from the article written by Luke Kinney's. But when I was at Buckner Rental Service, based in Home, Louisiana, back in the 90s, we sold to a group that had four venture capital groups in it. We took that company from seven to 27 locations, all along with the plan of selling during the rental consolidation. They were great to work with, and we all had the same goal in mind. We ended up selling that company to Neff Rentals, then headed by Kevin Fitzgerald, a great, smart gentleman who is back in the fray of acquiring rental companies today. And in my last gig as a COO and then CEO of a company called Marlin Services, based again in Homa, we had three different divisions, a pipeline maintenance, industrial blasting and painting, and fabrication uh, divisions. We started out with one location, bought another company, and then we sold to a private equity firm with the idea of having access to capital to take on larger projects. 
they had also acquired some a few other non-related companies in South Louisiana. Wow, what a difference. After months of due diligence prior to the sale, once they acquired us, we quickly realized they didn't understand the business. It was a nightmare in the making. They ended up removing the CEO, my friend, who was really the rainmaker of the business and then made me CEO. Things started to go south very quickly, even though we continued our growth. They, in my opinion, ruined that business and they're stuck with it. This too is in my book. So I'm pretty sensitive uh, to these types of firms. And so uh, today is the show is about if you take venture capital, you're forcing your company to exit. And remember, these are the thoughts of Luke Caney's, not my personal thoughts. And to understand venture capital, you must understand the consequences of how VC return capital to their investors. So modern venture capital is obviously successful. It's demonstrated by the fact that five of the world's six largest companies were funded by it. But success is as much about what you say no to as to what you say yes to. And venture capital is no different. In addition to delivering massive collateral damage in the course of its work, more on that later, the prevalent VC model rejects all ideas that do not fit within its narrow definition of a suitable investment. The primary contributor to this wholesale rejection is how VC delivers returns. So to understand why it's broken, we have to understand how it works. In this article, we'll go deep on how VCs get their money, how they turn that into more money, and what that all means in terms of what ideas they can and will back. Note that we're focusing here on the ideas, not the people. And there's a, there's a book by Ross Beard, The Innovative Blind Spot, that goes into great detail on this topic. So venture capital firms generally have managers and limited partners. The managers are the people we think of as the investors. They sign the checks. And the limited partners are the investors in the VC firms themselves. They're limited in the sense that they have ownership in the VC firm, but no real control. They don't actually invest in companies or VC firms. They invest in an individual fund and all of the work done in investing is built around the fund, not the VC firm. And this is particularly why you might have seen an investor leave a firm, but stay involved with investments from the old firm. The investor is still on that fund, even if they're not at the firm anymore. Most limited partners are very large financial institutions, like a university endowment, or pension fund, and they work with venture capital as part of a diversified investment strategy. And our first deal with Buckner, it was actually investment divisions of several banks that invested in the company. And they have pockets of money in all kinds of places. And venture is added in to ensure that they have some high risk, high reward investments. 
These don't necessarily even deliver better returns. And in general, VC as an asset class does not do that well. It's really there to get the right mix of risk in the portfolio. In most cases, the limited partners are represented by people who would not fit in at a venture firm because they usually finance people at governmental or nonprofit institutions. A fund is raised by investors, managing partners in this context, seeking money from high net worth individuals, institutions, and anyone else with a lot of money laying around. Money is committed for the life of the fund, and except in rare cases, limited partners cannot just pull their money out. They must wait for companies to mature and either sell or go public. One of the strange things about these funds is that they are explicitly modeled as long-term investments. Limited partners invest with VCs as a means of putting money to work over something like a 10-year period. If the money all gets returned quickly because of an exit, it throws off the spreadsheets and they quickly have to find somewhere else to put the money. That sounds silly, but it does have a real impact. Venture capitalists take the limited partner's money and use it sometimes to buy stock from startups. Once invested, the fund holds a bunch of stock instead of a bunch of money. Crucially, this stock is all in private companies, which means it's generally illiquid and that you can't easily exchange it for cash. It's also usually preferred stock, which means the investors get a few extra terms around control and how cash is distributed if there is a below value exit. If this were a traditional fund, like you might buy in a brokerage account, there would be plenty of ways to make money and the investors could deliver returns however they wanted. They could rely on growth, dividends, sales, or anything else. However, VC funds are limited partnerships with strict rules about what can be done with the money, no matter where you are in a fund cycle. If a company gets sold for cash, you have to distribute that cash to your investors, keeping typically 20% for yourself, of course. That's called the carry. You can't reinvest it in another company. This is only generally true. Firms that don't have this restriction are called evergreen funds and are usually funded by a single institution or family. This distribution on an exit is the primary mechanism for VCs to return capital to their investors. The other way is for a company to go public. This is a weirder one. It's discussed as an exit because it allows investors to return capital to their LPs, but it does not convert shares to cash. The difference is that the stock is now liquid, which means it's basically equivalent to cash. The VCs distribute the now public shares to their LPs, 
who can now all trade it in for cash whenever they want. Ironically, distributing shares to LPs is a big risk for the company that got funded by the VC. If 50% of the company's stock is owned by investors and they distribute all that stock to their LPs the day a company lockup period ends, what do you think the LPs would do? Where they're not experts in tech or high growth companies, and more importantly, this stock doesn't fulfill the same needs as the VC fund did in their asset allocation. So they sell it off, of course. And what happens to a newly public company who finds that 50% of their shares are suddenly sold on the public market? The stock is hammered because a huge upsurge in supply means an equivalent drop in price. And I might interject, if you look back at the history of the consolidation of the equipment rental industry, they all started strong, but many faltered and end up in bankruptcies of sorts to stay alive. Uh, just a little history there, but that's really kind of what happened. So that's why VCs distribute shares over a broader period of time, usually 18 to 24 months. They have some flexibility in how this is handled so they can protect these newly public companies. And with that, let's take a quick break and jump back to Voice America. Thank you. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Genie Z60-37FE Boomlift is at the forefront of true hybrid technology. It is actually two machines in one that can be used for both indoor and outdoor applications. The Genie difference is a lower cost of operation and cleaner performance. The Genie 60-37FE Boomlift is more fuel efficient, driven by high-efficiency AC motors, which means lower emissions too. Check out the Genie FE difference today. Visit genielift.com. Genie Genuine Parts undergo testing on long-term durability and reliability, which means higher equipment resale values and warranties for you. You don't want to waste time and money on generic parts or even counterfeit parts, especially in the long run. Genie Genuine Parts are factory fitted and field tested to the highest of standards, which means more machine uptime. We also have free ground freight on orders of $750 or more from our two parts warehouses. Go to genielift.com to find out more. Have you tried the new generation of Genie XC Booms? The XC stands for extra capacity, and with new technology in the design, the Genie XC Booms carry a higher load with dual capacity capability, compliant to global industry standards. Save time while you increase productivity. The new Genie XC Booms are common in design, parts, and accessories for easier servicing. For more information about the Genie family of XC Boom Lifts, visit genielift.com. That's genielift.com. Genie Aerial Pros is one of the most comprehensive industry websites focused on safety and standards, service, and new products and applications. 
The Genie Aerial Pros site features experts in aerial and rental markets with five decades of experience and shared knowledge. You'll also get information on upcoming industry and company events, videos, training, and more. The Genie Aerial Pros website is available on a wide variety of platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or through our own website at genielift.com. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. This is Rental Equipped Talk Radio with Donald Charbonnet. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to rentalequipedtalkradio at gmail.com. That's rentalequipedtalkradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. And welcome back. And uh, today we're talking about venture capital and an interesting article by Luke Caney's uh, that's entitled, If You Take Venture Capital, You're Forcing Your Company to Exit. And so just trying to help people understand uh, how it works. And so we just went, kind of went through that. So if you understand how it works and how venture capitalists get money, make money and then give it back to their investors in turn, why does that matter? It matters because there are only two ways for a VC-backed startup or ongoing business to be a success for its investors. Go public or get bought. It's been said, any company has four options. Go broke, go public, get bought, or stay private indefinitely. So if you take VC money, that last option is off the table. It's worth saying again, if you take VC money, you're committing to getting bought, going public, or going broke. Crucially, that means that investors must push you into one of these outcomes. The reason they they derive private businesses that generate cash isn't because they're bad businesses, It's because they're structurally incapable of profiting off of them. Their system is limited to valuing sales or IPOs. Nothing else can have value to them because nothing else allows them to make money. This means that if you've got a great company that's taken some VC, but is at real risk of settling into a mere 20% growth rate, with a site to profitability, but only making, say, X million a year, they're going to push you out of that comfort zone. They have to. They'll ask you to raise a growth round so you can really scale this thing. And they'll try to sell the company. If that doesn't work, they'll just fire you and put someone else in place who will do it for them. And again, in my book, I've lived that nightmare. It's not because they're evil, it's because their contracts essentially require it. They can't return the stock of a private company to their LPs, so what choice do they have? Now that we understand how investor behavior is driven by how capital is returned to investors, let's discuss what it means to say the technology startup ecosystem as a whole, there are VCs for things outside of tech, but the asset class was basically invented for technology. And that's where it's centered. And I'm using this as an example. 
if you're seeking funding for your technology company or even a rental company, you essentially have to promise that you can and will sell your company for an outsized return or that you can and will take it public. In reality, almost no one invests with the expectation of a sale. They're all betting on an IPO, recognizing that a sale is a good second option. It doesn't matter if you can generate a ton of profit. They have no use for that. In fact, it might get awkward if you started distributing dividends. This has two big consequences. The first, of course, is that companies that don't have a realistic shot of going public can't get venture capital. This is a striking constraint, given how much of our economy consists of small, profit-generating businesses that generate jobs and cash locally, whereas the ranks of public companies that distribute returns only to the investment class have been shrinking for decades. The story they'll tell you is that only those really high-growth companies need VC money but it's much simpler than that. Their business model doesn't work if your company doesn't sell or go public. Bank loans do okay at providing funding for low-risk actions by mature companies, and VC does well at funding high-risk companies with the chance to be huge, but there's a huge gap in the middle that struggles to get any funding. Medium-risk companies often do need funding, but can't get it, which in many cases means the businesses either don't exist or end up much smaller than they really could be. And the second major consequence is that a lot of companies are able to convince themselves, and thus investors, that they could get big enough to go public. Yeah, this is sometimes true, But in so many cases, it is instead a lie that both parties tell in order to get the funding done. So if you love your company, and the only way to keep it alive is to promise to keep growing, you will. You understand the risk, but they're better than just letting your company die. In too many cases, this absolute demand for continued growth is exactly what kills companies. They never learn the operating discipline necessary to generate cash, which, in the end, actually still is king. And they get too big to sustain themselves. At some point, the lie gets out. They can't get more funding. The fundamental unsoundness of their business model becomes clear, and the whole thing deflates. When you hear a VC say, you should focus more on growth than cash, What they're saying is, you should worry more about my ability to return capital to my investors than your ability to still have a company in a few years. It might be that growth is the right thing to invest in, but it isn't automatically the right thing. And it's at least fair to say that the investor is not a neutral party in this recommendation. So now we see that so much of what we find poisonous in the world of venture capital 
is actually the result of how returns are distributed to investors. The growth at all costs mentality, the huge amount of dead companies, pushing employees to work to the bone until they get an exit, and much more can be laid at the feet of this simple constraint. I don't know if this is an alternative model that they will work in the world of high-risk tech startups, but I do know that there are plenty of other investment models that are able to deliver returns without introducing this kind of dysfunction. Conglomerates like Berkshire Hathaway's are able to own significant chunks or even the entirety of companies and deliver great via growth, dividends, and clever use of float. This provides them the flexibility to get their portfolio companies choose their own best means of returning capital to investors. Coincidentally, Berkshire Hathaway's is one non-VC-backed company in that list of six largest companies. If an industry could develop a funding model that was compelling to founders, as is a current venture capital model, the dysfunctions that were that we're experiencing would be reduced as business naturally gravitated to whatever fit them best. Fundamentally, venture capital isn't causing the dysfunction in the markets. The lack of alternatives to venture capital is. Again, I have nothing against VC firms. There are a number of successful transactions within the rental industry. This is just some of the, how the systems work. Uh, just to be careful who you get in bed with, so to speak. And so I hope that that helps identify some of the things that we read about in the paper about not only rental companies joining up with an equity group, but even manufacturers, because if you're not ready to growth and run with that growth, you just soon not get involved at all. So let's move on. That's enough about uh, about VCs. And again, I got nothing against them. I've worked with some great ones. I've worked with a bad one, in my opinion, that uh, that really ruined a company because they really didn't have their feet in the ground and about what the industry was really all about. So as as we move on. So now we prepare for and move into 2020. What have you done at this point? to prepare your strategy. Do you have a written financial forecast? Do you have a written marketing plan? As I said earlier, do you know what new equipment you'll be bringing into your fleet? Do you have a strategy to bring it to market? Have you met with your banker to see what your credit limits are, or rather the manufacturers for the equipment that you're about to purchase let's say either between now and the ARA show or at the ARA show. And of course, as I've said before, uh, a lot of the ANSI standards are changing. And so from the aerial side, which has become such a big part of this industry, uh, do you buy before the ANSI standards go into place? Will they really happen in March? Will you be able to get grandfathered in? Even if it's used equipment, or new equipment. 
The timing of this is very critical to everyone who's in the business of renting aerial equipment, no matter how large or small it may be. So just something to continue to think about. Uh, I don't know of any VC firms, so to speak, that exhibit at the uh, ARA show. Uh, I don't think that they're out there looking. There's probably a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes of people or private equity groups making investments in some of the public companies that we that we do have out there that have, in fact, assisted in their growth and been successful, but only after having a tough time in the trough, so to speak, in the early days of this consolidation, you know, starting in the early 90s to where we are today, you're talking about 30 years of a lot of things that have changed within the industry. So let's take another quick break and go back to Voice America before we start talking about some strategy. Back to you, Voice America. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. The Genie Z60-37 FE Boom Lift is at the forefront of true hybrid technology. It is actually two machines in one that can be used for both indoor and outdoor applications. The Genie difference is a lower cost of operation and cleaner performance. The Genie 60-37 FE Boom Lift is more fuel efficient, driven by high-efficiency AC motors, which means lower emissions too. Check out the Genie FE difference today. Visit GenieLift.com. Genie Aerial Pros is one of the most comprehensive industry websites focused on safety and standards, service, and new products and applications. The Genie Aerial Pros site features experts in aerial and rental markets with five decades of experience and shared knowledge. You'll also get information on upcoming industry and company events, videos, training, and more. The Genie Aerial Pros website is available on a wide variety of platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or through our own website at genielift.com. Genie Genuine Parts undergo testing on long-term durability and reliability, which means higher equipment resale values and warranties for you. You don't want to waste time and money on generic parts or even counterfeit parts, especially in the long run. Genie Genuine Parts are factory fitted and field tested to the highest of standards, which means more machine uptime. We also have free ground freight on orders of $750 or more from our two parts warehouses. Go to genielift.com to find out more. Have you tried the new generation of Genie XC Booms? The XC stands for extra capacity, and with new technology in the design, the Genie XC Booms carry a higher load with dual capacity capability, compliant to global industry standards. Save time while you increase productivity. The new Genie XC Booms are common in design, parts, and accessories for easier servicing. For more information about the Genie family of XC Boom Lifts, visit GenieLift.com. That's GenieLift.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Rental Equipped Talk Radio with Donald Charbonnet. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to Radio at gmail.com. That's rental equip talk radio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. 
And welcome back to the third segment of the show. And this morning we've been talking about venture capital and uh, the ins and outs of that whole industry. And I think we kind of beat that horse to death. So we're moving on. And uh, as I ended the last segment, I was asking, how do we prepare and move into 2020? And what have you done at this point to prepare a strategy? How are you going to be more profitable in 2020 than you hopefully were in 2019? And do you have the written forecasts and a marketing plan and new equipment that you'll be bringing in and exiting from your fleet? And do you have a strategy to bring it to market? And I know in past shows we've done a lot about strategic planning, but I want to talk about how to be strategic. So you might have heard that the more you progress in your career or business, the more strategic you should aim to be. Well, what the heck does that mean? Here's what I used to think being strategic meant. First, setting metric goals. Two, thinking outside the box to come up with new ideas. Three, working harder and motivating others to work harder. Four, creating frameworks. And five, drawing graphs on a whiteboard to show folks how it might work. As a result, many have tried to do as many of the above as they could. They brainstormed, they familiarized themselves with the language of KPIs and measurements, check, 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 went to boxes and see how well I was strategizing. Unfortunately, as it turns out, what they were doing was the equivalent of strumming a guitar and assuming they were making music. The core problem was that they didn't really understand what strategy was. Nobody had ever explained it to them. They figured being strategic was just engaging in high-level product discussions. If you find yourself in the same boat, then this is for you. So what is strategy? Basically, a strategy is a set of actions designed to achieve a particular objective. It's like a route designated to get you from point A to point B. A more interesting question is, what makes for a good strategy? And for that, a good definition is, a good strategy is a set of actions that is credible, coherent, and focused on overcoming the biggest hurdles in achieving a particular objective. So let's break that down. Achieving a particular objective it should be clear what success looks like. A set of actions. There should be a concrete plan. Credible and coherent. The plan should make sense and believably accomplish the objective. There should not be conflicting pieces of the plan. Next, focus on overcoming the biggest hurdle. There should be a clear diagnosis of the biggest problem or problems to be solved. And the plan should focus resources towards overcoming those hurdles. So given the above excuse me, definitions, let's look back at the original list of strategic actions. 
quoting metrics or setting goals. This is certainly a part of strategy, but it isn't enough. You need a credible plan. Just saying our strategy is to set more aggressive goals is the equivalent of writing bigger checks and not having a real bank account tied to them. Coming up with new feature ideas. If you don't know the problem you're trying to solve, it doesn't help to brainstorm a bunch of solutions. This is like blurting out an answer on Jeopardy before they ask to have heard the even question. And we are in the problem-solving business for our customers in this industry. So those things are important. Next, working harder and motivating others to work harder. Working hard is great, but don't confuse motion for progress. Assuming that working harder is the answer to winning is like assuming thoughts and prayers can solve climate change. Next, creating frameworks. Frameworks can help explain concepts, but they're not a plan. Having good frameworks is like having a clear map. You still need to chart a path. Drawing graphs on the whiteboard may look impressive, and I've done my share, but it's probably classic bad strategy. A lot of jargon, and a lot of fluff, and a lack of real substance. So you say, nice definitions, but the question still remains. What should I do if I want to be strategic? So here's the secret sauce. Do more of the following three tasks. One, create alignment around what wild success looks like. This is kind of self-explanatory, but hard to do in practice. As a litmus test, ask yourself this. Imagine your team is wildly successful in three years. What does that look like? Write down your answer. Now turn to your coworker and ask him or her the same question. When you compare your answers, how similar or different are they? They shouldn't be different. You both work for the same team or company. And yet, there are plenty of reasons they might be different. You might care about multiple outcomes. You might track many goals. Which ones matter the most? What happens if they trade off against each other? And how does the success of your organization's mission or the success of your business factor in? If the answer isn't clear to all the members of your team, then guess what? There's a lot of work to do. Number two, understand which problem you're looking to solve for which group of people. And I've said this before, there's several different divisions without, inside a specific branch, so to speak, and that you've got sales, you've got service, you've got logistics, you've got administration. So are there problems within any of those specific groups that you're going to try to solve in all cases in an effort to make the business better? So 
Imagine if it kicks that you're looking to transform the future of rental. What should you do? If your instinct is to start throwing out ideas, like how will hybrids fit in? And will I need electricians as techs with all the battery operated equipment that's coming in? And what would deliveries be different? Will there be different logistics matters? Will, will Amazon be delivering rental equipment for you rather than your own staff? So do you know what the problems are with rentals today? Those are, those are questions that need to be answered if you look at your company and see what the different issues may or may not be. I'm not saying they're all with everybody. Maybe you do. It isn't hard to come up with a list, and there are a lot of problems. As I said a moment ago, technicians, affordability of equipment, safety, pollution, technology and telematics and software and all the things that this industry is growing to to become more effective and hopefully more profitable with all the new technology things that are, that are coming out there and actually in what's happening in the equipment itself, which is you know the main focus of what we do every day. So now here's the hard part. What's What's the relative importance of each of those problems? Which ones matter a lot and which matter a little? For whom do these problems matter? This leads us to the next few sub bullets. But when we look at for whom these problems matter, in our case, in the rental industry, it matters to our customers. Being efficient, being fair, having the best equipment that runs uh, with the new technology. I think sometimes they're selling more technology than in fact that they're selling the equipment itself because our unit can do this or that uh, and maybe brand X's can't do this or that. So next few sub bullets. Understanding the ecosystem around the problem. Problems don't exist in a vacuum. There are likely more other people out there who are also obsessed with solving any given problem. How are they approaching it? What's being done well and done properly? Which groups of people are getting ignored? Where are the opportunities for a better approach. It's still, it's, it's kind of silly to start inventing with the blank slate. Understanding a problem well means also understanding your competition and understanding the systems around which this problem exists. Do your research, competitive analysis, jobs to be done, audience segmentation, marketing sizing, and so many, many other things along those lines, and what gives us a framework to evaluate them. And understanding which problems suit your unique strengths and weaknesses. You can't solve every problem equally well. So what problems can you solve better than anyone else?
what are you or your team really good at and what are the weaknesses? And you know, when in doubt about all the above, remember the wise words of Sun Tzu, substitute enemy for problem. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. You know neither the enemy nor yourself. You will succumb in every battle. Those words from The Art of War. So when we look at the equipment side of things, you take away the diesel and hydraulics of most of the equipment, which is the main components of what we do. What are the other benefits of what this equipment can offer to our customers to make one better than the other? It's a tough question. So, you know, in, in a lot of cases, you've got to prioritize and cut. And I always hate to use the word enemy. I'd much prefer to use the word competition that's out there rather than that particular word. It's just, uh, I don't know. You think we, we should call them just brand X or uh, many other adjectives along the way that have happened. But uh, in this case, I'm just not so sure what, what the best adjective would be when it comes to looking at the competition. And so I'm sure there'll be the air ratio while we're talking about equipment. Uh, there'll be a lot of talk about what equipment is best for everyone. And so with, with that said, so let's take a quick break and go back to Voice America. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Genie Aerial Pros is one of the most comprehensive industry websites focused on safety and standards, service, and new products and applications. The Genie Aerial Pros site features experts in aerial and rental markets with five decades of experience and shared knowledge. You'll also get information on upcoming industry and company events, videos, training, and more. The Genie Aerial Pros website is available on a wide variety of platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or through our own website at genielift.com. Genie Genuine Parts undergo testing on long-term durability and reliability, which means higher equipment resale values and warranties for you. You don't want to waste time and money on generic parts or even counterfeit parts, especially in the long run. Genie Genuine Parts are factory fitted and field tested to the highest of standards, which means more machine uptime. We also have free ground freight on orders of $750 or more from our two parts warehouses. Go to genielift.com to find out more. 
Have you tried the new generation of Genie XC Booms? The XC stands for extra capacity, and with new technology in the design, the Genie XC Booms carry a higher load with dual capacity capability, compliant to global industry standards. Save time while you increase productivity. The new Genie XC Booms are common in design, parts, and accessories for easier servicing. For more information about the Genie family of XC Boom lifts, visit genielift.com. That's genielift.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is Rental Equipped Talk Radio with Donald Charbonnet. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com. That's rentalequiptalkradio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. And welcome back, and thanks for joining me today. Uh, the first part of the program, we talked about venture capital, and then we've jumped into the subject of strategy. And so what is strategy? And we talked about creating alignment around what wild success looks like. We talked about understand which problem you're looking to solve for which group of people. And so now we're jumping into prioritize and cut. Prioritizing is super hard because most of us hate saying no. Imagine the scenario. A and B are debating which features to include in the next equipment purchase. A thinks doing X is the most important, while B disagrees and wants to do Y. What's the easy way out? Doing both X and Y, of course. No one's feelings gets hurt. We get our cake and eat it too, and a better piece of equipment. And I'm sure these days, as I've said earlier in the show, with technology, there's a lot of those questions going on as manufacturers and outside uh, vendors offer more technology to make our equipment smarter and, and better along the way. So time, energy, and attention are not free. Remember how a good strategy is focus. Focus is a strategic advantage that lets you move faster on what matters most. That's why a tiny startup with dozens of employees can win against a company of hundreds or thousands. The more your plans get watered down, trying to do lots of things, the less likely you are to have a competitive advantage. Either X is more important or Y is more important. And I think in the case of our industry, this is why the smaller independents feel more lean and mean against some of the larger international, national, regional companies. And so there's always going to be a fit for those independent companies along the way. If you can't figure it out, you have to go back and do more research to better understand the problem or issue. The question to ask isn't, what more can we do to win? Or how can we make sure None of the things we're juggling are failing. Instead, ask, what are the one, two, or three most important things we must do? And how can we ensure those go spectacularly? 
tell your team that when the discussion becomes, should we ship this mediocre thing or should we spend additional time that we don't have to make it better, the battle has already been lost. The thing we failed to do weeks or months ago was cutting aggressively enough. Either this thing matters, in which case make it great, don't make it mediocre, or it doesn't matter, in which case don't work on it in the first place. So again, there's always lots of issues, but who's going to set and prioritize what the main issues of the day are going to be? So people think focus is a quote. Here we go. People think focus means saying yes to the things you've got to focus on, but that's not what it all means. Excuse me, that's not what it means at all. It means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that there are. You have to pick carefully. I'm actually as proud of the things we haven't done as the things I have done. Innovation is saying no to a thousand things. So said Steve Jobs. What a master. What a master he was. So as you go into 2020, again, what are you doing for a strategy to become more profitable, especially as many parts of the country go into the slow part of the season when, in fact, the snow's hitting, the equipment's sitting, and what are you doing to maximize that time to, in fact, make the most of your time with uh, managing your equipment and making your focus your equipment along the way to make it all much better as you go in to the new year. So happy strategizing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say along the way. But if you don't stop and start a strategy, you're not going to be ahead of the game. And quite frankly, you won't be in the game. So with that, there's so many options and decisions to make in the weeks to come about those equipment and those utilization reports that show you where you really should be investing your capital and meeting with your banker to make sure that you have an easy flow when things get to the point when, in fact, you're ready to buy equipment. So I hope you're all getting your act together and getting ready to uh, do what you have to do along the way, so to speak. And so uh, with that, okay, uh, everybody have a happy holiday and uh, uh, be safe and I'll see you next year. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into Rental Equip Talk Radio. Be sure to join your host, Donald Charbonnet, next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time for another edition on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we speak again, have a great week.